We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This letter was written in the middle of the first century. Paul wrote this letter to a little church in the big city of, city of Corinth, which is a lot like 21st century San Diego. Um, we've been through the first six chapters this year, okay? And we're starting chapter seven. The church in Corinth was dividing over politics and personality cults, and they're suing one another, and they're confused about sexuality. And so Paul addresses a lot of those problems. But now when we hit chapter seven, Paul turns this corner. There's a shift. And so look at verse one. It starts, now for the matters you wrote about, <laughs> which I think is amazing. So it's, that's a long intro. He's a typical pastor. So um, by chapter seven, he's like, now about what you asked me. Um, I think that's funny. Anyways, uh, apparently the Corinthians wrote this letter first to Paul. Some letter we don't have anymore. And it was a bunch of questions. And now for the next eight chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to Q&A, basically. He's going to answer their questions, um, which is fascinating. Tons of questions about marriage and singleness and divorce and remarriage and worshiping other gods and gender roles. Are men and women allowed to lead together in the church and spiritual gifts? It's going to be incredible what we get to go through uh, from now till Easter 2021. We will finish this book together. Uh, so here's the plan for today, okay? We're going to briefly walk through verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7, where Paul responds to their first question about sex and marriage, okay? And then for the end of the sermon, uh, we're going to come down into communion by, by asking a question. What is marriage for? If all of chapter 7 is going to be about marriage, and we're going to be in chapter 7 for like four Sundays, including this one. And it's all about singleness and marriage and divorce and sex. And what is it all for? What, is, what does marriage mean today? Why do you get married? What's the point? This is a question a lot of our culture is asking right now, more than ever. And so we're going to frame up everything. At the end of this sermon, we're going to frame up the next four weeks by asking that question and getting to an answer from the scriptures. So, but first, let's zoom in to the first six verses, and, uh, and then we'll zoom out at the end. So you ready? So here we go. So Paul says in verse one, he's like, now, for the matters you wrote about, quote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay, what's going on there? Notice the quotes. If you're reading an NIV Bible, the NIV gets this right. Most scholars agree this is not Paul's opinion. Paul is not saying it's good for a, per for a husband not to have sex with his wife. Paul's not saying that. But he's quoting something the Corinthians are thinking and writing him about, okay? It's a wrong thing that they're thinking. Apparently, there's this movement going around in the church for whatever reason. Maybe the early Christians were reacting against the intense prostitution culture of Corinth, and they were overreacting and thinking now sex for pleasure is wrong, ever. Maybe that's what's going on there. But some in the church were basically saying married couples shouldn't have sex unless they're actually trying to make babies. Um... So this is a different problem than last chapter. If you were here last week, people are like, I can do whatever I want with my body. There's also another group in the church saying, I can't do anything I really want with my body because that's what it means to be holy. And so there's these two really unbalanced views in this church. So Paul responds in verse two. He says, but since sexual immorality, remember last week, pornea, sex 
with someone you're not married to, since sexual immorality is happening, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband, okay? Paul's saying, essentially, every husband and wife in the church should freely enjoy sex with each other, and this can help protect a marriage against sexual immorality, okay? So I don't know about you, I grew up around the King James version of the Bible. There's a lot of good things about the King James. This verse is not one of them because it tends to mis mislead the, the translation away from the intent. Uh, not intentionally, it's written a long time ago, the English version of the King James. But uh, because of this misleading translation, this verse has been massively misunderstood. Um, and some have interpreted this verse to mean well, Paul's saying to avoid sexual morality, you got to just get married. And that was an interpretation I heard growing up. Um, it's not an uncommon misinterpretation. It's pretty common. But the NIV gets it right. Paul isn't saying that if you're sinning, well, you better just get married. Uh, no, he's simply saying married people who don't have sex are in danger of being tempted elsewhere. So please, have sex, married people. Please, is what he's saying. Yes, please do it. Uh, and, and he makes his point clear in verse 3 and 4 right here. He says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. That, that phrase, marital duty, feels really cold and clinical. It, it's, a, it's an ancient Jewish way of, of talking about all the responsibilities of one spouse to another. And then verse 4, this is, this is shocking. He says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Shocking in Paul's day. First century Corinth was very patriarchal. Adult men, especially men of class, they had their way sexually with whoever they wanted. But in this moment, Paul is elevating women to the same level of authority in marriage as men. With that phrase, in the same way, husbands do not belong to themselves, but to their wives' authority. Shocking, scandalous in that day. Uh, so, so if you're a Corinthian and you hear the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. You're like, yeah, that's a yawner. Of course that's true because you're patriarchal culture. But then if you hear the other, if you hear it the other way around, the, the, in the same way, the husband doesn't have authority, but yields it to his wife. Mind is blown. Okay. So Paul is teaching equal authority and mutual consent between the sexes here. This was completely progressive in his day and liberating for women then, and it still speaks prophetically today in the wake of the Me Too movement, okay? It's, this is still, Paul is fasc fascinating and so timely still. So when people try to paint Paul as this like woman hater who preached male dominance, I'm like, have you even read the New Testament? Paul's, Paul's like, in the same way, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. That's literally the opposite of male dominance right there. This is mutual authority and submission in a time of one-sided 
patriarchy, sexism, and mass abuse of women and children. Paul is, Paul is preaching against the grain into God's future here. He's standing with Jesus Christ in the spirit-led liberation of women to freely serve in God's kingdom equally alongside their brothers in Christ. If you don't believe me, just wait till we get to 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul talks about like women and head coverings and prophesying in the gatherings. It's gonna get crazy, okay? It's gonna be amazing. So for now, Paul finishes this short section on sex and marriage with only one negative command. Only one negative command in this passage. It's verse five. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And then he adds, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I love that. Uh, so, so for Paul, and, and this is gonna get pretty specific here. So I don't know if you have kids with you or whatever. It's not gonna get to PG-13 or whatever. But for Paul, the only reason a married couple should withhold sex is number one, by mutual consent, two, for an agreed upon time, and three, for the purpose of prayer. It is a type of fast for Paul. And here's Paul's reason, so that Satan won't tempt you because of lack of self-control. And by the way, he's extra clear, he would never command this type of fast. Jesus does command food fasts. But, uh, but this kind of fast, Paul's like, I would never command this fast. It's too dangerous. It's, it's, it's a powder keg. But I am simply permitting this fast for prayer. So what does this look like? A common example, you know, think of a business trip. You know, a, a lot of us go on business trips. If you're married and either you or your spouse go on a trip, that trip is a clear call from God to devote yourself to prayer. What if you reframed your mind around that in that way? This is a type of fasting that's specifically permitted by the Apostle Paul himself in the name of Jesus for exactly the scenario of a business trip. That's just one example. So whatever this looks like, as married followers of Jesus, I'm speaking obviously very specifically to married people right now or, or people that are engaged and moving into marriage. Um, when, whenever you enter an agreed upon time frame in which you and your spouse will not be sleeping together, you're officially entering 1 Corinthians 7, fasting and prayer territory. And that is holy ground, you guys. Specifically prescribed by the New Testament as for you to draw near to God so that you can draw near to one another, once again to your spouse, with your spiritual and sexual integrity fully renewed and ready to re-engage body and soul with your spouse. And I wanna say one last thing on this before we get to the big question. And, and it may be a little awkward, but I, you know, as a friend of mine says, the awesome is in the awkward. I think it's important to, to go here as a church family. There's a very, pro, a very common problem in many marriages today, and it's a situation called a sexless marriage. Sexless marriage 
has been defined by psychologists as a marital union where little to no sexual activity occurs between the spouses, where it's normal for weeks, even months to pass between having sex. And today, 20% of marriage, married couples between age 18 and 59 have sex with each other 10 or less times a year. So 20% married couples, age 18 to 59, have sex less than 10 times a year, 10 or less. That is a sexless marriage. And it happens for all kinds of reasons, and it's way more common than a lot of us realize. According to one author, uh, sexless marriage was the most Googled phrase about sex and marriage in 2015, even more than unhappy marriage or loveless marriage. So over 21,000 people searched the term every month on Google. Uh, listen, I realize, and I want to say this, there are so many reasons for a loss of intimacy in marriage. And I am not a therapist, not even going to pretend to be one by the, any stretch of imagination, but I am a pastor. And we just walked through six verses of clear teaching from the Apostle Paul on this. And by the authority of Jesus himself, Paul commands married Jesus followers to pursue and do the hard work. It's not easy to do the hard work of healthy, frequent sexual relations to preserve and protect the marriage against sexual immorality, but not just to protect it, but also to positively express and confirm and deepen the covenant love and intimacy. In other words, to live as one flesh in the, in the language of scripture. So I say this with all the compassion and humility, and I, I admit I have ignorance about all of this. Uh, I, I can't pretend to know your situation at all. Everybody's so different. I don't know you uh, like Jesus does. Jesus knows. Jesus knows you. He's for you. And let me just say, as a pastor, if this applies to you, get help. There's help. And I know it's hard to broach that conversation, but Christian sex therapy is incredibly powerful and biblical and helpful, powerful for so many. Email us. We will completely confidentially um, uh, sign you up or get you uh, connected with a therapist who is trusted and spirit-filled and understands this stuff. Okay. I know that was awkward. That was, that was somewhat awkward, you guys, but it's so important. It directly comes out of this passage. So, and I just want to say right now, hey, single people, just shout out. How you doing? Doing good. All the love. I, I know when we talk about marriage, um, it's, it's easy for single people to, to feel unseen and talked past in many ways. And that's the last thing I would want to do. I want to honor where you are in the kingdom, which in some ways, as we're going to see in the next couple Sundays, Paul argues, has gifts that are more desirable than the very difficult gift of marriage. And singleness is not a secondary class citizen situation in the kingdom of God. It is primary and valid. I mean, Jesus was single. So like, our, we follow a single guy. We live after his image. Um, so I want to say to the single people, well done sitting through this. And, and maybe if you're single uh, and you're sitting through this, you're like, 
does Paul really have to command married people to have sex? Like, what's going on? Like, what is going on? Is this for real? Like, did the great Apostle Paul really need to spend his precious Apostle time, like, writing 40 verses telling a bunch of Christians to keep having sex? Like, is that really a thing? Or even more, did a whole church really write a letter asking about this to Paul? It's crazy to think about. But the answer is, in fact, yes. Paul did need to address this. He did need to address this. Which brings us to the bigger question, okay? The question behind all of this, married, single, divorced, remarried, uh, uh, whatever, parents, no parents, like uh, no kids, whatever, wherever you fit in the relational home unit spectrum, the big question behind this chapter is, what is marriage for? That's the question we all need to wrestle with and move toward in the spirit. Like, what is marriage for? What does marriage mean? Why is it even a thing, let alone a good thing from God? What does that even mean? I mean, marriage is popular in America, you guys. Marriage is popular. In the last year, 2.5 million weddings in America. Almost all Americans on the other... uh, Also, by the same token, almost all Americans report having sex before marrying. 66% of couples are already living together when they tie the knot. It's estimated that in 2020, 39% of marriages will end in divorce, but that never really stops us. Divorce doesn't. So, because in around around 40% of marriages today, one or both partners have been married already once, at least. So just because marriage is popular doesn't necessarily mean people are flocking to Jesus' vision of marriage. So what is it? What is Jesus' vision? Like, we're followers of Jesus. We need to be walking out of this church gathering with this question burning in our hearts. What is marriage for? Even if you're like, celebrating that you're not called to be married, this is, as a Jesus follower, a question to process ingest and be able to live in with the covenant community of singles and married together. So what is marriage for? To answer that question, where do we, where do we start? Where do we start? The answer is, it's the Sunday school answer for almost every Bible question. Jesus, yes, good. So to answer this question, we start with Jesus. We start with him. Because he's our ultimate authority. We follow him. And as his followers, we've been transformed by his love and given his spirit so that we can follow his teachings. Uh, we, 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 We can't honor fully and follow fully without his spirit, without responding to his forgiveness. So because we have, and we see that he has welcomed us into his family, and he offers forgiveness of sin and cleansing and honor for our shame, we can now respond to his teachings and submit to his authority well as his children. And, and the fact is, Jesus' teachings, there's a lot of them, and he addressed fewer topics with greater clarity and punch than marriage and sexuality. He talked about that a lot. In a famous interaction between Jesus and the religious people of his day, uh, they, they, they came to Jesus and asked for his opinion on marriage and divorce. It was a raging debate in that day. And watch what happens. It'll be on the screen. Verse 3, Matthew 19. 
It says, some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So this was a raging debate in that day between two schools of Jewish thought. <clears throat> and look at Jesus's response. First words, haven't you read? <laughs> He's talking to scholars, the, the highest scholars of the day, the Pharisees. And Jesus is like, haven't you read a book? The book. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator, quote, made them male and female, unquote. And the creator said, quote, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. All right, so Pharisees come at him, trying to stump him with a hot political question of the day. And Jesus just sails right past it to the very beginning. And he quotes Genesis one and two, the first two pages of the story of God. And, and when Jesus does this, you know what he's doing? He's framing marriage. He's framing this conversation about marriage within the story of creation itself, the creation of heaven and earth coming together. Jesus is doing this on purpose. Here's why that's important. The whole story of scripture, Genesis to Revelation, it begins and ends with marriage. It's like the two bookends of the story of God. There's a ton about marriage in the middle, but the bookends show this ideal. And it's the joining together, get this, watch this, of heaven, God's space, and earth, our space. That's the marriage. That's the big marriage behind the whole thing. Heaven, God's space, and earth, our space, united, two different, completely distinct spheres, united perfectly. That's the marriage this whole universe is moving towards. In the first pages of the Bible, there's, these, there's this theme of different yet united pairs coming together. Even the two creation stories are different united pairs. What am I talking about? There's two stories. Did you know that? Genesis 1 verse 1 through chapter 2 verse 3, that's one creation story. And then if you go one verse later, Genesis 2 verse 4 through 25, that's another telling of the creation story. Yeah, there's two creation stories and they're different. They're, they, they are very different. People try to like harmonize them and it doesn't always work the way we think it should because they're different. And yet they're united and interlocking and they fully complement one another when we know what we're looking for. And, and so these two stories tell us that God made heaven and earth to work together from the beginning, heaven and earth are intended to be these two different yet united spheres of God's creation. And then the story unfolds and you see pair after pair mirroring this different united dynamic. So light and dark, right? God speaks, let there be light. And then he separates what? Light from darkness. There are these two different things that are impossible to understand without each other. What is light without dark? It's incoherent or dark without light, not a thing. And so just thinking of that, dark and light, united in creation, and then sea and dry land, 
And then day and night, sun, moon, plants, animals, and the list goes on. And then within the animal kingdom, you see specifically male and female, different, meant to be united. And then the whole creation story builds up to this big reveal. And it's the creation of humans in God's own likeness. And the likeness is, it says, male and female together. One flesh. It's amazing, you guys. The creation story is amazing. And, and, the, and the story begins, as it begins, we discover that marriage is a good gift from a generous God who loves working for the benefit of his kids. And Genesis chapter two, it ends with a famous poem on the screen. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So all these different yet interlocking pairs, they reach their peak in the union of the man and the woman, okay? So that they, the male and female in that moment are clearly meant to reinforce and complement one another and point to the bigger picture, which was what? It was, it was heaven, God's space and earth, our space, destined to be together again. And we see that ending. We see that destiny come true in Revelation. Revelation 21 and 22. It, it was foreshadowed in the first two chapters of the Bible and it is fulfilled in the last two chapters of the Bible where you see what the author calls the new Jerusalem, the city of God, like a bride descending for the groom, the son of God on the last day, the great wedding day of the lamb, Jesus and his church. Okay, you guys, this is, this is that symbol of marriage again. Male and female joined together. The author uses bride and groom which are clear male-female uh, monikers even today. And so now the church is the bride and the bridegroom is Jesus himself. This is God's dream come true. This is what he set out to create in that garden full of potential and beauty. And one day his full healing presence will flood creation once again. Every tear wiped away as we see and know Jesus with nothing between him and us as his family. Until then, one way to taste that future is through marriage. This is what marriage is for, to give ourselves and our world around us a way, not the only way, but a way of tasting the future union of God and his people. Okay, so followers of Jesus, we begin the marriage conversation with this picture in mind. What is marriage for? It is a signpost pointing to the greatest union that every atom of creation longs for, for God to restore all things in perfect love. So without this in our minds, it's easy to cherry pick. Like it's easy to like pick out some of the Bible's teachings on marriage and misread them as a bunch of rules. Like we could read 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's saying these do's and don'ts. We could be like, oh, that's just Paul being a helicopter parent or whatever, stick in the mud. So it's easy to misread. That's why I wanted to talk about this on our first of four Sundays in 1 Corinthians 7. Because without this backdrop, um, we can misread these things as just rules and when we do that, it's just a matter of time before the Bible's teachings, we just update them to fit whatever our progressive mood is of the day. 
And, and that mood is often like, well, if Jesus was around today, I don't think he would have said it like that. I think he would have said it differently. That's not something we get to do with Jesus as Jesus followers. When we're faced with a choice, and I want us to understand this, this is important. When we're faced with a choice between what Jesus actually said and what we think he would have said if he were here today, followers of Jesus by definition go with the first one. Jesus wasn't just making up a bunch of rules out of thin air, neither was Paul, not by a long shot. They weren't just trying to create some 90s purity culture or whatever, not at all. His, Jesus's vision was way more holistic and beautiful and life-giving than that. Jesus' teachings call humanity to live as present symbols of the future marriage of heaven, God's space, and earth, our space, forever. And the last verse I wanna share, Paul, he burns with desire. He wrote about how God also, God burns with desire for this heaven and earth marriage. God wants it. Romans 8, verse 18 through 22 talks about this. And Paul talks about creation like a mother and childbirth here. It's a beautiful picture of motherhood and womanhood. And he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Everywhere we look, if we're paying attention, creation is groaning for healing and for salvation. And, and Paul uses this, Paul, Paul frames this in terms of a woman groaning in childbirth. What, what is childbirth pain? What is that? In a, in a healthy pregnancy, it's, it's full of hope and anticipation, right? It's not just like the pain of a broken bone or whatever. It's full of hope. And that's what the pain of creation is. It's all one big agonizing mother who is longing for the hope that will come. Christ will come and he will restore the universe and that will be the marriage that will last forever. No other marriages are gonna last forever. All other marriages will end because all marriages are temporary signposts to the eternal union of heaven and earth, you guys. It's all about heaven and earth, this whole thing. So what is marriage for? It's about that. God wants to be with us. Heaven longs to meet earth. I, I love the old John Mark McMillan worship song, you know, heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. It's actually theologically beautifully accurate. <laughs> This is what God desires with his creation. And, and so there are, if you're married and you're watching this, know, just know this, your marriage is not an end to itself. Your marriage is temporary. All marriages are temporary. Marriage, human marriage is not an eternal covenant. It's a temporary gift for some, okay? To point toward that union with God. Contrary to what's often been communicated in modern Western culture, marriage and sex are not the ultimate expressions of human flourishing, you guys. Remember, Jesus was single. 
and he is the ultimate human. In fact, the Apostle Paul clearly says uh, singleness is equally, if not more, desirable gift than marriage in some ways. But make no mistake, marriage and singleness, as we will see this month, marriage and singleness are both gifts. Jesus and Paul call them both gifts. And they're both hard and they're both very unglamorous at times and they're both beautiful and they're both eternally valid and they both have ways of reflecting the great marriage union that is coming through the community of the spirit, okay? So we're gonna come to the table now. We went through 1 Corinthians 7, one through six and then we backed away and said, what is this all for anyways? And now we come to the table where uh, Jason and Tanika, our marriage and family pastors, they're gonna lead us in eating and drinking. And remember, when Jesus gave us the bread and cup, he said, this cup, next time I drink with you, will be in the wedding feast of heaven and earth. So when we eat and drink, we're proclaiming Jesus died for us, and we're looking forward to a union with Jesus for all of us. So I want you to hear this. This is not a sermon just for married people. There's a lot of practical stuff for married people. But this is a sermon for a community where married and single people can better understand what marriage is for. Marriage is not for itself. It's easy for married couples to think their marriage is for their marriage. It's easy for married couples to just kind of settle in, get lazy, and not invite community in because we get busy. But hopefully this, this teaching inspires you in your marriage, if you're married, to open up your home to the community of Jesus, the broader community that is single and married, and some can have kids, some can't have kids, uh, gay, straight, ethnicities all over the place, uh, children, adults, elderly, uh, remarried, like this whole community is the bride of Christ eternally. That is the marriage that matters most. So if you're married, then you exist for the greater marriage, not just yours. If you're single, well, that's why Paul says you get to be devoted to the greater marriage entirely. So, so that is the dynamic here that we're gonna see in 1 Corinthians 7. And so we're all gonna live that out in a way as we eat and drink the bread and cup after this next song. So, uh, yeah, Joe and the team, they're gonna, the guys, I just called you the team. That's, that's, my, that's my church culture, my, 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 my 90s background coming out, the worship team. Um, they're gonna come and, and, and lead. And I'd just like to invite you to spend 30 seconds just being silent. What is the Spirit speaking to you in this moment? How is he calling you and your marriage to point more toward the greater marriage? How is he calling you and your singleness to give yourself to the greater body of Christ. What does that look like? Invite the Spirit into this moment.